It's time now for Money Matters with the Lewis family. Doug, Linda, and Deborah, owners of Lewis Financial Management, a Raleigh-based family-owned financial planning firm providing financial advice since 1983. Doug and Deborah are certified financial planners, CFPs, who can answer any of your questions about investments, retirement planning, and estate planning. Call Doug, Linda, and Deborah at their office, 919-872-7000, with your financial planning questions. That's 919 919- Now, here are Doug, Linda, and Deborah. Investments offered through SFA Inc. Investment advice through Lewis Financial Management. SFA Inc. and Lewis Financial Management are not related entities. And we are the Lewis family, ready to answer your questions tonight. This is Linda Lewis, and thank you for joining us on Money Matters on News Radio 680 WPTF. And I'm Doug Lewis, Certified Financial Planner. And I'm Deborah Lewis, Certified Financial Planner. And we're here to answer your questions for the next hour. Court, how can I help you this evening? This is Doug Lewis with Money Matters. Exactly. What is dollar cost averaging? Dollar cost averaging, Court, is a method in which you designate how much money you can invest over a year's time. Let's say you've run your analysis and looked at your income or you've worked with a financial planner because this is what we do for a living. We run analyses. We look at people's income. We look at their expenses. We subtract the two. We make sure we've covered everything. And then what's left over is what we call the net margin. We divide that net margin by 12 and we find out, lo and behold, the person should be able to afford X number of dollars per month. We don't wait until the end of the month or the end of the year to invest it, however. We go ahead and have it automatically drafted from the checking account or the savings account. And that goes into the mutual fund that you choose on a regular basis without you even knowing it's happening. And deliberately, because if you hear bad news and the market drops, that's when you would be most hesitant to send money in. However, we know that's the best time to send money in because it means you're buying the same number of you're buying more shares with the same dollars and all analyses I've ever run show that if you do that, you will end up by the end of the year owning more shares than if you had tried to pick a particular time, which means that you've dollar, you've, you've averaged the cost of your shares lower and lower and lower. And you can almost always depend on making more money dollar cost averaging instead of trying to go ahead and just pick the, the one time to send it in. If I can provide any more information for you, you can call the office at 872-7000. That's USA 7000. We're here in Raleigh. I'll be happy to either send you some information or see what we can do to answer any more questions that you might have. Okay. Well, I appreciate your help. Thank you so much, Court. Thank you. Bye-bye now. You know, Linda, the world of retirement planning is a broad topic, and some investors concentrate on their retirement nest egg number. You know, what what number do I need? What's my magic number? And when they focus on that, sometimes they end up feeling like that's just unattainable. So I thought I would bring up some things that instead are a more constructive focus on the dollar amount uh, that you can afford to save each year versus what the retirement number is. It's really true. A lot of folks focus on that magical nest egg number, a six or a seven figure magic number that seems unattainable. But instead, people who are 
using online retirement calculators, try to estimate how much they're going to need to retire. But the big numbers that they generate can tempt some of them to just throw in the towel. Give up, not even do anything. And how bad is that? That's the worst move is to be, um, I guess, immobilized by just the, the, the fear of trying to ever reach that goal. And each person needs to realize that they are more than a number because each situation is unique. And retirement saving isn't a one-size-fits-all proposition. Everybody's income varies widely and family situations differ. Lifestyle choices also make a difference, such as what is the cost of living in the area where you live or where you intend to retire. And what's your decision about working during retirement and whether or not you should downsize your home. Yeah, your current health, post-retirement health insurance, as well as your life expectancy, all of these factor into your retirement planning. The availability of retirement saving vehicles and their features also play a big role. For example, some firms offer a traditional employer-funded pension. Not many of those left, but some do. Some offer a 401k and others offer a 403b. Now, the benefit of those types of plans when it's available is the match. If you are able to match, be matched by your employer up to a certain limit, then you're fortunate to have this extra money that would be free money you'd be throwing away if you didn't capture it. So all of these elements should be considered when it comes to retirement planning. Well, Deborah, there's some ideas that can help our listeners get past those big numbers and put them on track to saving as much as you possi- possibly can. And the first big, uh, the first issue is tackle the big question: How much should I save? For some folks, it's a tricky question, but the simple answer is save as much as you can afford to save. Right. It sounds oversimplistic, but it really is. Once you get rid of the amount of money that you need to cover your monthly living expenses, everything left over can be saved. If you'd like further information, call us at 919-872-7000 or go to our website, DougAndLinda.com. That's DougAndLinda.com. One rule of thumb is that you should set aside at least 10 to 15% of your income each year. How we like to approach it at Lewis Financial Management is once you've made your money, once you have made enough money to cover the living expenses or you have enough money that has come in to cover the living expenses, everything that's left over can be applied towards a monthly, quote unquote, pay yourself first plan, a way to really tackle that question of how much can I afford to save? Well, as much as let's left over. And uh, as you said earlier, with some folks, their employer offers a match. Well, if they do offer a match, then you'll want to take full advantage and contribute enough to get the maximum match. But if you don't, you'll be passing up free money. For example, if your firm offers a 50 cent match for every dollar that you you contribute, up to the first 6% of your contributions, then you'll want to put at least 6% into your plan. And we usually say, stop there. Um, um, and, and each person's situation is different. But yeah, you want you don't want to leave that free money on the table. Another part of the whole investment portfolio, though, is what's outside the retirement accounts. So you need to increase your investments that are outside retirement accounts. Periodically, reassess your ability to contribute to 
and to contribute more to these accounts that are outside retirement plans. A painless way to increase your savings and investing is to link them to your pay raises. So think of it like this. When you receive a raise, earmark a portion towards your investment plan. You boost your investments without making a dent in your wallet. And it's a real nice way to put your pay raise to work for you. Another point to consider is the fact that your contributions come out of your paycheck on a pre-tax basis. Unless, of course, you're in a Roth IRA. Now, Deborah, one other idea is control what you can control. What are your thoughts on that, Linda? Well, you can't control control the movements of the financial markets, as we've seen this very week. But there are many elements in life that one can control. And the first step is making the decision to invest early in life. So if you're a listener and you've just graduated from college or you've just started you know, your new job in the last five years, start now, start early. Start a pay yourself first plan. Call us at Lewis Financial Management. We can set up an appointment and uh, have you you know, and help you set that up. That's right. Exactly. Yeah. When investing over the course of years and decades, the power of time can be significant. Even if you're in your fifties, you still have a decade or more of working and investing years ahead of you. So another thing to always consider is you'll need a professional, someone to help you, someone to advise you. And that's what a certified financial planner can do. Call me Deborah Lewis, certified financial planner at Lewis Financial Management. 919-872-7000. 919-872-7000. It seems that there are a lot of individuals that are being forced to take early retirement in some of the uh, corporate companies. And many of these people have not reached that 59 and a half age limit. Mm -hmm. And as a result, I guess what we're finding is that because they're going to have to replace their income, It's got to come from somewhere, right? So they're thinking of maybe dipping into their retirement monies. What happens? I think the best way to see what happens, Lynn, is just to go ahead and refresh your memory and take a sample. Let's take someone who uh, has been offered an opportunity. He works for a company here in town, a major corporation, and he's worked there for 25 years. And he's got, say, $200,000 in his 401k plan or in his profit sharing plan. And the company gives him an option. You can have a pension, annuity, a check for the rest of your life, or you can have this $200,000. And so he meets with a financial planner and they decide that he would like to take the $200,000. Well, when he takes it, he's got a couple of choices, doesn't he? You don't remember, Linda. He (laughs) pays taxes. Oh, of course. He pays a huge amount of taxes or he does an IRA rollover. Right. Now he does an IRA rollover. Now what happens? Does he pay taxes when he does an IRA oh, rollover? No, 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 no. Because it's rolled over from one trustee to another trustee. So the whole $200,000 is now over there in an IRA account. Right. And it's protected from taxes until the money is taken out as income. And now he needs to get some money out because he doesn't have any money to live on. And he happens to be under 59 years old. So now he's got this big problem again, right? And what's that problem? Usually, if you're under 59 and a half, you're also going to have to pay a 10% penalty. An extra 10% tax penalty. That's right. Here comes Section 72T. This is the magical section that very few people are aware of. I wonder why that is, Doug. Well, Section 72T, Lynn, under the Internal Revenue Code, lets you actually take money out of an IRA 
even if you are under 59 and a half and not pay the penalty. But to do so, you have to set up a series of systematic payments. In other words, you pick a dollar amount and you can't change that dollar amount for five years. You would have to get the same amount for five years. Right. Now, the question is, how do I figure that dollar amount? Well, is there a formula? There is Actually, there are three formulas allowed by the Internal Revenue Code. The IRS gives you three different ways to compute what that formula is. And it's very important for you to know how to figure those because, just as an example, let's say you use the first formula, which is called the life expectancy formula. And let's say the guy was 50 years old. Well, his amount that he would get out every year under that formula would be $6,000 a year. Let's say he used the next formula called the amortization formula. Then the amount he would get out every year would be $17,000 a year. Big difference between $6,000 and $17,000. A little bit more. And then a little bit more, almost three times as much. Right. Well, of course. From $6,000 to $17,000. Or if he used the third formula called the annuitization method, he would get out $18,000 a year. And that's the most. Right. That's the maximum. So now the question is, how does he figure out how much income it's going to be producing inside the IRA so that his amount that he comes out doesn't deplete his principal. That's based on the investments that are in there and what his needs are. And if he only needs 6000 then it's stupid for him to go ahead and start taking out under a formula that's going to cost him 18000 and also maybe deplete his principal. But any one of these formulas will let you, as long as you don't change it for five years, will let you get money out of an IRA and not pay the 10% penalty. Well, this is definitely something that some of our retirees do need to look into. And if you're out there listening and you happen to be taking early retirement, this may be a strategy that might help you take more income out of your retirement. You can take the lump sum and not be afraid of hitting the penalty. Exactly. Section 72T. And if you would like any other information, you can call the office here in Raleigh. That number is 919-USA-7000. That's 919-872-7000. I'll be happy to send you some information. Daniel, this is Doug Lewis with Money Matters. How can I help you this evening? Uh, yes, I have, uh, I think, pretty much of a specific question regarding uh, an investment manager. Uh, how one would check check the person out? I, I understand there are publications uh, which which somehow grade or, or list uh, these people. Tell me a little bit about your situation, Daniel. How, uh, how old are you? I am 50. You're 50 years old. You married? Yes. How old is your wife? Uh, 48. Your wife's 48. What's your income? Well, about uh, 150000 Is your wife working or does that include uh, her income? Th- th- that includes. All right. That's husband and wife's income. What does your investment portfolio look like right now? What do you own? Uh, basically in mutual funds and uh, government uh, uh, intermediate bonds. And... Give me some idea of the breakout. Like, what do you have? Uh, give me some numbers so I can see what it looks like. Uh, approximately uh, $250,000. In mutual funds? In mutual funds, uh, which uh, would be both equity and, uh, and balanced funds. Mm-hmm. And uh, about uh, 30000 in uh, intermediate bonds. Mm-hmm. Basically, there are a few other small things, but basically that's uh, it. Right. Why are you interested in going to a money manager? 
Well, uh, I don't feel that I'm capable of really uh, doing that well myself uh, with this. You realize the money manager is in competition with the mutual fund manager. So what you're saying, I think, I'm not sure if you understand what you're saying. What you're saying is not that you're not capable of evaluating it, but that you want to find someone more capable than your present money managers. Well, uh, you could put it that way, yes. Yeah. Uh, do you understand how, uh, well, first of all, let me answer your first question. How to evaluate, how to find out about the, about the money manager? Yes. Ask for his ADV form. His ADV form is the crucial issue. Okay. It, that, that's his SEC ADV. It stands for the advisor's form. Mm-hmm. Number two, find out if you can something about the history. The ADV will disclose to you how long he's been in business, what types of fee schedule he, he uh, that he charges, and so forth. If you have a if you do not have a long period, my own particular opinion is that I'm very skeptical of money managers because generally. They don't have a long enough history to show you through more than one 10-year cycle. The, the money manager for the mutual fund, he can show you, and I, or at least if he can't show you, I'm not interested in him, how he's done over the last 10, 20, 30, 40 years so we can see through up and down markets. This is Deborah Lewis. Call 919-872-7000 to set an appointment with me regarding your financial situation. Call me at 919-872-7000. Now, in my opinion, going to a money manager is a much more aggressive move than going to the larger pools and the managers who can show us better. Furthermore, you're at such a high point, you should pay very little. Your fees will probably be higher with the money manager than they are right now, even if you're in uh, fully loaded funds. You see what I'm saying? Yes. Because your break points are low. Lastly, Daniel, you're 50 years old, and I would counsel you to be more conservative, not more aggressive. You see what I'm saying? Mm -hmm. Now, on the other hand, you do need to work with a financial advisor or someone that can help you evaluate your present managers, the mutual fund managers that you've got, and develop a, a diversified portfolio of a consistent unit size and so on. You, you see what I'm saying? I believe so. Uh, in other words, you're already working with money managers. How many funds do you have right now? Uh, four. Four. Well, that's too much in my opinion. I mean, that's, that's too much with each fund. In other words, if you've got 250000 plus thirty, that's $280,000, I would pick a consistent unit size, maybe $25,000, and give that amount no more to each fund. You see what I'm saying? And build a diversified portfolio of funds according to the debt-to-equity ratio that's comfortable, your risk tolerance, and the long-term history of these managers through both up and down cycles. You see what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. This is, this is the way that I would go ahead and, 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 and I would allocate to protect you uh, for uh, you know, uh, investors in their 50s. Well, uh, of course, that's what the idea of the, of the money manager No, 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 no. He's going to be doing the various... Uh... That's just the opposite. Don't, don't be deceived. That's the opposite. The money manager is going to go ahead. You're going to have all of your money with one manager. I'm recommending that you choose eight managers or 10 managers. Oh, I see. Yeah. You see what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. And he is going to put 100% of your money in one pool. That's your pool. Whereas I would rather that you be spread over, let's say, uh, um, a billion-dollar pool, that your 25000 is part of a billion-dollar pool, so you're spread over maybe 100 stocks just with that one, and then do the same with the next one and the next one. 
your diversification will be far greater. You see what I'm saying? Yes, yes. Yeah, I think the I think the route that you that you've been considering is far more aggressive. There are ways to 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 evaluate and get track records, but most of those track records are not long enough, and there's been a lot written about them about whether you're looking at a true portfolio or a model portfolio. Mm-hmm. And what you want is a real true portfolio. Yeah, you really need uh, you need to meet you you need you need to have some professional guidance. I think in structuring the entire thing from the viewpoint of a planning perspective rather than a money management perspective. Mm-hmm. You see what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. How to achieve ultimate goal X, Y, Z, the estate side, the retirement side, and then the pro- and then to work back, back into that from the investment side. Daniel, if you'd like some further information, I'd be happy to send you some. You can call me at the office at 872-7000 during the week. And I'll be happy to send you some information that maybe might you might find helpful in your situation. Okay. Well, I appreciate it. Th- thank you very, very much. Thank you for calling, Daniel. I appreciate your comments. Okay. All right. Bye-bye. Well, Doug, there are huge numbers of people who find themselves with much more money than they ever dreamed of, right? Yeah, that's right, Lynn. Will those who give to charity wait until they die, or will they part with some of their wealth gradually? Well, you know, the answers depend on whether fundraisers can deepen the passion for philanthropy among the rich. Is that correct? That's the traditional view. That is the view, of course, that's held by so many of the nonprofits. People have different reasons for giving. One is the tax system. You know, what are people going to do? Uh, Do some good with it or give it to Uncle Sam and let him waste it? Many give with a charitable intent. Right, Doug? You're right. We see... Again and again in our office, we see so many people who don't know that they are wealthy. They're plain old, you know, dirt under the fingernails type of folks that have uh, uh, grown up and they happen to have accumulated more money than they ever dreamed of. And I think the situation basically is that the charities are trying to come up with strategies to encourage giving. So how can charitable organizations secure a chunk? The charities need to link up with the financial advisors because it's the financial advisor that can show the clients how they can have their goals met as well as uh, do good for society. They can get more themselves and be able to give more. You mentioned something about how these different nonprofits could link up with financial planners that have this expertise. Right. How can they do that? They can call them, (laughs) just invite them, but they need to go ahead and make the step out because the financial planning community and the financial planning profession has strategies that they can teach the clients how it works best for the clients because so often the charity or the nonprofit is facing the dilemma of trying to make like a sales pitch. But on the other hand, there are strategies that work best for clients. Now, for most clients, the primary purpose for establishing one of the charitable trusts is to increase income. Typically, what happens is people have accumulated assets or inherited, and they own highly appreciated assets that have, uh, low, you know, for example, low basis stocks or bonds in real estate that uh, fail to meet their current or future income needs. Right, Doug? So The problem, of course, is that selling that asset is going to yield a profit, which in turn could be reinvested to give more income, but the profit also triggers the tax, the capital gain tax, and that reduces the asset's income potential 
And so it shrinks the whole value of the client's estates. You're listening to Money Matters with Doug, Linda, and Deborah Lewis. Call to make an appointment with Deborah Lewis, Certified Financial Planner of Lewis Financial Management. Call 919-872-7000 or visit our website, DougAndLinda.com. And what happens is clients uh, can expose themselves to a greater degree of investment risk than maybe uh, it, than maybe prudent or, or wise to do by keeping a large percentage of their assets in a single investment instead of diversifying, right? Um, but in many cases, establishing a, a charitable remainder trust solves a client's dilemmas. Uh, it it's solves really, the dilemma and it well, provides additional... What benefits. It, what it, you're right, Lynn, because, you know, it's, it's a very simple five-step process. And these five steps, once people learn how to take these five steps, really gives the client greater financial power. It's real simple five steps. Number one, client transfers the asset to a CRT and then names an income beneficiary and a charitable beneficiary. Step two, the trust sells the asset, reinvests the proceeds to generate income for the client. Because the charity or some nonprofits, the ultimate beneficiary, no taxes. Step three, the client gets a tax deduction based on a formula. Step four, the charity receives a gift when the client dies, but not until then, from the trust. And step five, the children or the heirs get their inheritance by means of a replacement insurance. So these step, these five steps are there in using these powerful financial tools. Now, there, um, you know, you're, you're mentioning powerful tools. There are three types of charitable remainder trusts, and the most common uh, of which are what are known as CRUTs, CRATs, and NIMCRUTs. What are those, Doug? Well, that's exactly right. The, 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 the acronyms are CRUTs, CRATs, and NIMCRUTs, as you say. They are the three most powerful tools. And, of course, the CRAT, which is a... Uh, charitable remainder annuity trust, the CRAT has a guaranteed fixed income stream. It pays income during one or more lives. And what you get for setting up one of these is a powerful tax deduction. Now, the CRUT is a charitable remainder unit trust. And what it does is provide potential uh, for increased income. It, it links your income to investment performance and it guards against the off years with a makeup provision. And it also allows new assets to be added to the trust. Right. The CRAT you can't add to, the CRUT you can add to, and then you have the NIMCRUT, which allows greater income flexibility, lets you control the income flow, and lets you invest in a diversified portfolio of mutual funds. So it's not so hard. Call me, Deborah Lewis, Certified Financial Planner at Lewis Financial Management. Call me at 919-872-7000. 919-872-7000. Well, Doug, why don't we look at a case to give a better um, explanation? You want to make one up? Yes, yeah, so let's look at a case. Okay, let's, uh, let's make up a um, Bill and Martha Pillsbury, okay? We got a Bill and a Martha Pillsbury. They've been retired comfortably for several years. And they're thinking about their financial legacy. They want to make it possible for their five grandchildren to... Um, to attend top universities. Okay. And if possible, make a meaningful donation to a local children's hospital. I like it. Okay. Now, accomplishing both of these are going to be difficult unless the Pillsbury's cut back on their lifestyle and make fewer visits to their children who are scattered across the country. 
Now, they're both in their mid-70s, okay. um, and Bill and Martha are considering selling the family's rambling seaside home. Right. Now, that house was bought several years ago for, uh, say, $250,000. Today, it's going to sell for, let's say, a million and a half. But, of course, there's a big concern. If they were to sell this piece of property, it's going to ge- uh, generate capital gains taxes. Right. Now, the taxes are going to reduce the couple's estate. It's going to limit their retirement income. And this financial stumbling block has kept the Pillsbury from selling their home and moving into a smaller, more manageable abode. So the question is, what do they do? Well, first of all, Bill and Martha can place their $1.5 million home in a CRUT, a charitable remainder unit trust, to benefit the children's hospital. There you go. Step one. They place the home into the CRUT. Since the trust will benefit a charity, the capital gains from the sale are exempt from taxes. There you go. Step one, the whole million and a half is there, no taxes. Step two, the trust now reinvests the money and generates $105,000 a year in income. Because there are no capital gains to pay, the income from the CRUT is bigger than if they had sold it outright. So now they got 105000 a year income. And a portion of the income buys a second-to-die life insurance policy. So it's a um, an irrevocable life insurance trust is set up, right? That'll work. But they also get a big tax deduction for setting up this trust, and that gives them much more take-home, less taxes. So that offsets a bunch of the insurance premium. So step three they get this insurance policy. So the death benefit goes to the Pillsbury's grandchildren. That's step four. And step five, upon their death, the trust assets go to the children's hospital, right? Right. So what happened there was really they they were able to get all of their goals met. Bill and Martha, on their death, their grandchildren get equal portions of that million and a half for their college expenses, and they also made the benefit to the hospital that they wanted They got more retirement income. They avoided capital gains taxes. They provided a tax deduction to increase their spendable income. It's, as they say, a win-win-win situation. They reduce the size of the taxable estate. Right. They protect the value of their estate for their children. They're able to donate a substantial gift to charity, and they diversify their assets. And it's, as they say, controlling your social capital. That's exactly what it is. If you'd like any further information, call me at the office in Raleigh. That number is 919-872-7000. That's 919-USA-7000. Well, Doug, when it comes to investing, who are more conservative, men or women? Hmm. And also, who are less likely to save money, men or women? And who needs more funds for retirement, men or women? I would have to say in each of those three cases, the answer has to be women. Women are more conservative than men. Women are less likely to save money than men. And women need more money for retirement than men. Exactly. And despite their education level and their income, women often feel intimidated by the stock market. And they have less confidence in their investment abilities than men do. That's exactly right. According to my experience, that's exactly right. And not always, but usually that's the case. As a matter of fact, I think there was a study I read that showed that amongst 600 men and women who had income over $50,000, they found that the difference, the gap between the two of them was not their ability to make investment decisions or their ability to have investment expertise, but it was their confidence. Women way low on the confidence level. And most women, uh, more women than men were likely to say, uh, to make statements like, 
I often uh, put off making financial decisions because I'm afraid of making a mistake. Very common woman's remark that I hear, or common uh, that women very often will say, well, the ups and downs of the stock market make me nervous. Others will say my lack of knowledge about investments keeps me from becoming involved in financial planning activities. But actually, Linda, women should get involved in financial planning, and the sooner they do, the better. Women have less money than men, but they have to stretch it out further, and they should take charge of their own financial affairs. The study also found that women are paid an average of 5 to 15% less than men are paid. And over their lifetimes, women are out of the workforce longer than men are, an average 11 and a half years compared with men's 16, 16 months. So what should they do? Well, number one, they need to visit a certified financial planner. Women should not be afraid. They should visit a certified financial planner. And then they should learn the basics. The basics of investments get educated with the help of a financial planner. Of course, after that, they should set their goals. You need to help yourself get your goals crystallized. Your financial planner can help you determine how much money you're going to need for retirement. What about uh, funding uh, college education for your children? What about investments and other dreams? Once you set your priorities, your financial planner can explain different types of investments. And if you have any questions regarding that, do give us a call at the office, and that number to call is 872-7000. If you have any questions regarding uh, charitable trusts. Margaret, this is Doug Lewis with Money Matters. Yes, good evening. How are you? Fine, thank you. Good. Um, I'd like to know if there's a formula whereby you can figure out how much you're going to need for retirement purposes. Yes, there is a formula. I Well, I shouldn't say there's a formula. I do it all the time on a computer at the office. I I can tell you the process. How old are you, Margaret? 49. 49 years old. Do you know what your living expenses are? Um, per month? Yeah. About $400. You're not living on 4800 a year? Yeah, roughly. Well, that's what I spend. Yeah. About. How much do you bring home? Um, about eighteen. Eighteen hundred? No, thousand. You're bringing home eighteen thousand, and you're only spending four thousand eight hundred, so you're saving about a thousand two hundred a month. Right. Okay. And so you've got a good size investment portfolio. Pretty good. Yeah. Okay. All right. Well, let's say that your living expenses are four thousand four hundred dollars a month. Okay. Then all you do is you go ahead and you multiply times twelve, and that's forty-eight hundred dollars a year. And I would divide that right now by eight percent. And 4800 divided by 8% says that $60,000 in an investment portfolio will produce enough eggs, if you will, to support you at your lifestyle, and you can be financially independent if you've got $60,000 invested in an investment portfolio. You have that now? Right. Then you're already financially independent. You don't have to worry. You've already made it. Well, what I'm, the main thing that I'm worried about is you know, medical care when, when you age. Our office number, by the way, is eight seven two seven thousand, Margaret. And uh, you don't, uh, yeah, you, you don't have a problem. What you need to do, though, is look at your entire financial world. Look at the estate. Look at the wills. Look at the diversification of your investment portfolio. You want someone to make sure that they're allocated properly for your risk tolerance and so on. Mm-hmm. But then again, in fifteen years, you don't know what that portfolio is going to look like either. It could if be you, down. It could be up. Depends on whether you're working with an investment advisor or not. How much do you have right now, Margaret? If I liquidated everything? Well, just in, in terms of how much you have invested. Um, about 200000 What are you invested in? 
I have about 75 in stock and unfortunately about 125 in uh, money market. Well, you need some bad help. You shouldn't have anything in individual stocks and you shouldn't be uh, in, in money market. So where should I be? I'd be in growth and income funds. I might be in some real estate. I'd be in a diversified portfolio depending on what your risk tolerance is, what your, what your personality is, what your, your future needs are. But the worst thing you should be doing is sitting with $125,000 in money market at 25 or 3%. See, when I'm hoping, Margaret, when you retire, that you go on vacations and, you know what I mean, enjoy life, right? Yeah, well, <laughs> yeah, well, that's true. I, I realize that. But right now I'm looking, you know, for some good investments. So. Right. Well, call us at the office and I'll, I'll call me at the office and I'll send you some information and we can discuss it further. Okay. Thank you very much. Thanks for calling. Bye-bye. This is Deborah Lewis of Lewis Financial Management. Call us at 919-872-7000 to speak about your situation and to set up an appointment. 919-872-7000. Well, Doug, you know a dis- disabled child really adds uncertainty to estate planning. Wouldn't you agree? Disability. I really would, Linda. You know, questions like, will your child who's disabled be able to function as a fully independent adult or need some form of continuing care? Will he be able or eligible for government funding or capable of holding a job? And where will he live when you're no longer there? These are big questions. Dealing with such uncertainty often turns estate planning into an emotional arena for parents who have disabled children. It's important, Lynn, to recognize that the disabled child likely will continue to need assistance long after the parent's death, and that means that you really do need a plan. And Doug, you know, for folks that do have disabled uh, children, it's best to start with the, the plan with a destination in mind and basically decide where you would like your children to be if you died tomorrow and work from there. Right. Start by making a will, but in deciding how to divide your assets, take into account government funding because government programs are necessary for many disabled people since care is expensive and can rapidly deplete a family's finances. And you know, Doug, the the answer for these folks with regard to their estate planning is, uh, for most, the answer would be a special needs trust. Uh, When such a trust is properly crafted, such a trust not only protects access to government funding, but it also creates a whole management system that will support your child. Mm-hmm. The trust itself, Linda, must be specifically created, however, to be supplemental, providing only extras for the child. Health, welfare, and support, those three words are the killer words. If those words appear in the trust document, then it won't work. So basically what we're looking at is that a person has to assume responsibility. And before creating this special needs trust, the family needs to decide on some very important issues. The first being that uh, they need to decide who will assume the responsibility for their child after the parents die. And family members are often the best option, uh, but it's important to name many backups. If you have several children or relatives that you would name as backups uh, as options to take care of your child, And you also need to allocate responsibility in such a way that it matches up with the strengths and weaknesses of individual family members so that you avoid burning out specific family members in the process. If you need help, call me, Deborah Lewis, 919-872-7000. 919-872-7000. 
course, in some cases, there are no family members. And at that sort of situation, you have to turn to professional trustees like banks. And banks very often have social workers and private care managers on staff. But I agree. First, you should have family members as the ones who assume the responsibility. And that should be written, of course, into the trust. We're talking about disabled children and how they can add uncertainty to your estate planning. Another important issue that needs to be considered is how to allocate family resources. Yeah, the problem here is that what's fair isn't always equal. In many cases, the disabled child may simply need more. And the way to handle that really is to have a frank discussion with other members of the family in laying out the, the plan. Questions like, how much is enough? Well, that really depends on both the severity and the type of disability. You want to start by looking at the current cost and then factor in inflation. You know, Doug, also uh, in considering where the money to fund such a trust is going to come from, often an insurance policy is a wonderful solution. And uh, people generally look to last-to-die policies because they're cheaper and the benefits aren't paid until the second parent dies. Uh, Also, the funds will be available when it's needed for the child. The trustees can minimize the problem by keeping the money out of the hands of the beneficiary. And trustees and others who assume the responsibility for a disabled child really are going to find that they need a wealth of information to avoid all of the traps that are out there. And that's one reason why most financial planners, advisors who work in this area recommend that parents should write a letter of intent clearly outlining the child's history, setting priorities for care and services, and even discussing their own hopes and expectations. You know, Doug, when I was working as a speech therapist, I worked with a lot of disabled uh, and handicapped individuals. And if you are a parent and you're listening to our show right now, write down your questions. And the bottom line is, if you do have a disabled child, work with a financial planner that can help you work through what the special needs of the child are and how to... uh, effectively take care of these matters with regard to your estate planning. If you would like to call our offices during the week, our office number is 919-872-7000, 919-USA-7000. Typically during the week, I'll speak to many, many listeners that call in at the office, and the confusion, or it, it, it appears that there are a lot of folks out there that do get confused, and you know, on the one hand, they do exercise their option, to participate in a retirement plan. But a lot of times uh, their portfolio is is uh, lopsided. Mm-hmm. Uh, so many people get um, mesmerized by being able to contribute to their plan that they contribute 15% or 16%. And then in their personal name, they have little or nothing. This is a big mistake. This is a real big mistake. And you're absolutely right, Lynn. A lot of people have overfunded their retirement plan in exchange for underfunding their personal retirement program. And then it's way out of balance. Not only that, the larger amounts can produce a tax problem on the rear end where you could be facing either a choice of a 50% penalty for leaving money in your plan or a 15% penalty for taking money out of your plan because you didn't do pre-planning and you didn't balance your two portfolios. So it's important to, um, Write your questions down and work with a financial planner, right, Doug? You need to go ahead and work with a planner to see the kinds of situations that you could be getting yourself into and the advantages to take advantage of. That number is 872-7000 in Raleigh. And if you'll call, I'll be happy to assist you in whatever way I can. 
Well, Doug, at different points in a person's life, one will be concerned with different financial matters. And while it is true that different individuals will face these phases either earlier or later than other individuals, the cycle of issues proceeds in a fairly predictable pattern over a person's lifetime. Wouldn't you agree? That's right, Lynn. You know, people who, for example, are in their 20s and 30s, for them, they need to establish solid financial habits since the money habits that they develop now will set the financial tone for the rest of their life. And now is a good time for them to set up a record-keeping system and monitor your cash flow and develop a workable budget. And while it is important to establish good credit, it is even more important to keep your debt under control. Right. And, of course, to set up a contingency fund, which we call an emergency fund, equal to anywhere from two to six months of living expenses. And it's important to start a regular savings program aiming to save at least 10% of your gross income. I think that's the most important thing of all, Linda. And, of course, you want to be investing for the long term when you're in your 20s and 30s. And most individuals are anxious at this time to buy their first home. And it's an important decision, but you need to make sure that you can make that mortgage payment without straining your budget. And of course, in 20s and 30s, start saving for your children's college education. And make sure to prepare a will, naming a guardian for your children. Now, when you get to your 40s and your 50s, there are some other things to consider. Your children are probably now in college, and you'll have to help them finance their college education. So if you didn't accumulate sufficient savings over their childhood, then you may need to take on some debt in order to help them. And at the same time, for folks in their 40s and 50s, you may find that your parents also need your help with financial matters. And it's imperative in your 40s and 50s that you seriously start saving for your own retirement. And now's a good time to evaluate your investments. And of course, take time to plan your estate. And when you get into your 60s and beyond, before you retire, review your finances carefully. You may want to consider a part-time employment, both to supplement your income and to occupy some of your time. For folks in their 60s and older, they want to review their estate plan. They want to consider the use of a living will. They want to look at a health care proxy, durable power of attorney, and possibly a revocable living trust. And in your 60s and older, reevaluate your gift-giving plans for your family members, as well as for your favorite charities. And of course... You want to provide your family with the details of your finances. And I would say, Linda, for most important of all, for folks in their 20s and 30s, for folks in their 40s and 50s, and for folks in their 60s and beyond, they should work with a certified financial planner who can see the whole picture. If you'd like any further information, call me at the office in Raleigh. That number is 919-872-7000. That's 919-USA-7000. Educating children will probably be one of the biggest financial challenges a family will face in their lifetime. In fact, experts are predicting that costs are going to continue to exceed the consumer price index. Now, that doesn't mean, you know, that you have to have sticker shock. Well, you know, some people say it sounds, it still sounds outrageously expensive. How am I going to pay for it? Many parents wonder. Yeah. You may be able to afford the college of your choice if you start now to plan ahead. However, for most families paying for college, it's going to require more than simply dipping into the family savings account or writing a check out of your current income. And that's where really a certified financial planner 
can help in maximizing cash flow and in establishing a realistic savings investment strategy and also maybe qualifying for financial aid. That number at the office, by the way, is 919-872-7000. Well, people also wonder, Doug, can my planner calculate the cost of what it's going to cost to put it, you know, your person's child through school? Of course, I don't know what other planners do in their office. I know I do, and I can, and uh, and if it's a good financial planner, uh, he should or she should be able to. Most certified financial planners have resource materials on the current cost of schools and worksheets for projecting four-year cost and the amount you're going to need to invest each month to be able to pay the bills. Well, another question that's raised is, is college really worth the cost and the effort? Well, of course, investing in your child's college education uh, is a very subjective issue. Some some parents say, uh, let the kid pay for his own school or not go to school or whatever. But on the other hand, in many cases, it's one of the best investments the family will ever make because over a person's lifetime, the average individual with a four-year degree is going to earn 50% more than the person with only a high school education. But young parents and 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 all parents alike, I guess, wonder, when should I start saving for college? When should a parent start saving? Oh, I would say probably the day after your child is born. Uh, you, you really want to start as soon as you can, because the sooner, the better. Not only will you be able to put in more over time, but your savings, your investments will grow through compounding. Time is your greatest ally. And if you have the full 18 years, you can do magic that's very difficult when the child is a year or two away from college. If you have any other questions, you can call us at the office in Raleigh. That number is 919-872-7000. That's 919-USA-7000. Let's take another call, Doug. Okay, Dorothy, how can I help you? This is Doug Lewis with Money Matters. I wanted to know what do you think about a living trust? Tell me a little bit about your situation, Dorothy, and I'll tell you what I think about it for you. I'm married and... We're both 75. How much are your assets? 350000 Do you have any insurance, any life insurance? Yes. Is that included in the three fifty? Yes. So the combined estate, including the life insurance, is $350,000 for the two of you. Yes. Let's discuss what a living trust does and what it doesn't do. And first, let me ask you, why are you interested in one? I just don't want the hassle and the expense that would come with a probate bill. A living trust will not reduce your estate taxes. Do you understand that? Yes. If you establish a revocable living trust while you're alive and transfer the ownership of everything you own into this trust today, then basically your will says that anything left in your estate passes to whomever you desire. But since you've already moved everything out of your estate, there's really very little that your will will touch upon. Everything that's been transferred into this revocable living trust is not part of your estate and therefore is not available for public scrutiny. So confidentiality is one of the main reasons people want revocable living trust. The cost of probating a will that you mentioned is based upon the amount that's in the probate estate. If you've moved everything into this revocable living trust, then there are very little legal expenses to cover the probate estate. In North Carolina, our costs are not all that high. 
at a small estate like yours, it is not a crucial factor. Should you have a revocable living trust instead of a will? No. You always should have a will in the opinion of most estate planners and estate attorneys in addition to a revocable living trust so that that will will catch anything that you have not dealt with and will simply pass it into this trust. And then at your death, the trust passes the proceeds to whomever your will would have passed them to. You see what I'm saying? Yes, I do. Does that answer all of your questions? I think it does. I like the revocable living trust. For example, have either you or your husband ever been married before? No. Are there any possibilities of any of the heirs or slighted heirs that you might not want to know what you've left? Not necessarily. Then there may be no reason for you to look for a revocable living trust. Let's say that your husband had been married before and had children from one marriage and you were married. Y'all wanted to leave your estate to your children, but concerned about that his children might be upset if they knew about it and they might want to bring a legal action or whatever. Mm -hmm. They would not know what was left in the trust. They would only know what was left outside of the trust. In your case, I'm not sure that a revocable living trust will have any real benefits for you. Okay. I just, just, we were just reading about it and wanted to know. Well, I like them a lot for certain cases, but again, and I had a client recently that we did one with, and he was concerned about his children, and there was a child from a previous marriage, and he was concerned. Also, he had an ex-wife, and he was concerned. He just didn't want anybody to know what he had when he died, and that was why we did one for him. Okay. And if you'd like any more information, our number in Raleigh is 8727000, and I'll be happy to send you some information. Thank you very much. Thank you for calling, Dorothy. Thank you. Well, that's all the Money Matters we have time for today. So we want to thank all our listeners for joining us. And for any other questions you may have, call my office during the week and we'll set up an appointment to meet with you personally. That number is 919-872-7000. That's 919-USA-7000. And we'll be back next week on this same station at the same time. In the meantime, have a great week. And remember, your money matters because your financial future is at stake. You've been listening to Money Matters with Doug, Linda, and Deborah Lewis. Money Matters provides you with a personal financial hotline on any subject where money really matters. For more information, you can call Doug, Linda, or Deborah in Raleigh at 919-872-7000. That's USA 7000. Listen again next Saturday and Sunday at 5 p.m. for Money Matters with the Lewises on 680 WPTF.